And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Denise Kiernan back to the program today. Denise is a respected writer of nonfiction, having co-authored five books with Joseph Dagnese and 2013's The Girls of Atomic City. And she was on Book Talk in 2017 to discuss The Last Castle about the Biltmore Estate in North Carolina. Today, we will be discussing her new book that is seasonally perfect. We gather together, a nation divided, a president in turmoil, and a historic campaign to embrace gratitude and grace, which is published by Dutton. Of course, putting out a book called We Gather Together, I'm sure you've heard this from other interviewers, but it seems like a difficult sell in the time of social distancing. (laughs) You know, it's one of those things where, as a writer, when you're working on something as as long and in-depth as a book, you're usually working with these ideas for a while before you formulate them into some sort of pitch for your agent or an editor. And then that usually, you know, gets tweaked a little bit. Then you actually, you know, write the book, then you revise the book, then your editor edits the book. And so by the time a book comes out, you're always in a different set of circumstances. You're always in a different quote unquote world than you were compared to when you actually, you know, first conceived of the book or thought about doing, you know, pursuing a particular topic or characters for a book length work. But when I, when I tell you the extent to which the world changed seemed so much more drastic for me with this particular book. And yes, when I was going back, if there was one thing that I had to keep, I kept trying to change as long as I could. Even when we were starting to get into production, I was like, I got to do the epilogue again. This is, just, you know, <laughs> because I, I feel like I am going to sound, you know, so completely out of touch, but it was very surreal to be getting ready to put out into the world a book title we gather together when the phrase social distancing was trending and taking off. So you never know how, but the the, the timing for books, you can make yourself crazy trying to actually plan for the perfect time for any book. But with this one, I thought, well, this is either going to be a really good time for this book or a really bad time for this book. (laughs) (laughs) Like there was no sort of in between, but I do actually feel as though the message of coming together, I'm hearing anyway from readers. I've done a couple of, you know, the book is very new, but I've done a couple events of events already and hearing from people during these online events or, you know, via social media or whatever, that that message is really resonating with people, which is nice. And I think it's because we all do under these circumstances, I think, feel the importance and the value of finding a way to come together. For a book that's called We Gather Together, and it's ostensibly about Thanksgiving and the showing of thanks, not only in America, but also you do touch on other cultures and other countries. But the word Thanksgiving isn't in the title anywhere. How did that come about? Well, I actually didn't want, as strange as it sounds, and actually on, on when I was writing about this, just sort of like little bullet points to keep in mind. One of the things that I kept coming up with is, you know, when is a book about giving thanks, not about Thanksgiving. And one of the reasons I think I've been mulling this idea for a while, but I did not want to do just a, here's the history of Thanksgiving. I didn't want to do that. I had found Sarah Josepha Hale, one of the key players in my book. I had found her story very compelling and her obsession with making sure there was a single day in the United States when we all got together for a day of general Thanksgiving. 
And I thought that the fact that the president who kind of got on board with her and began our, you know, our annual uninterrupted streak of national Thanksgiving days was Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War. Because for me, a lot of times with stories, it's not so much individual events or occurrences themselves, but sort of the juxtaposition of those things and the intersection of those things. But I still didn't want to just write a book about, you know, the two of them and the Civil War. And the gratitude piece was the piece that was really missing for me. And then when I tuned into that, it sort of became a linchpin for the book as I was beginning to envision it. So it became more about really looking at a big swath of American history through the lens of the different ways in which we have come together or not to give thanks and to celebrate what was eventually referred to as Thanksgiving. And, and the gratitude piece is, is when I realized this was the book. I was going to do this book and the gratitude piece had to be a big part of it because there's been so much more research in the last you know decade or so about the physical, mental, emotional benefits that are are studied now on on a neurological level of having a gratitude practice and of finding ways to be thankful for what we have. And that that impact is even greater when we do that during difficult times, when you find the way to find something to be thankful for during difficult times. And it is such a gratitude is such a timeless concept and giving thanks goes back as long as humans have have walked the earth. So to me, it just became a really interesting journey to sort of use giving thanks as a lens through which to examine the American experience. Now, of course, the subtitle of the book, A Nation Divided, A President in Turmoil, and a Historic Campaign to Embrace Gratitude and Grace, that's set to mirror what's going on in contemporary United States of America. With the country so split almost evenly along political lines and the coronavirus pandemic taking such a toll on the country and its people and the contentiousness about how to address that, what things do you think in contemporary American society we can be grateful for in common? That's a great question. And, you know, the subtitle was inspired by the Civil War, but it just, of course, feels incredibly relevant today, like you said, a a mirror. And that in and of itself, I find interesting because as cliche as it sounds, history is a very interesting teacher and it's always fascinating and can be very instructive to look back at times when we faced incredible crises and how people behaved for good or for ill during those experiences. And as far as what to be grateful and and really to come together over in today, in this day and age, in the midst of these circumstances that, that you enumerated, I think it's incredibly important, almost certainly you could argue more important than, you know, saying thank you when, you know, the sun is shining and everything's going, going fine and dandy. Um, For me personally, and I think a a lot of people in the country, no matter who you are or no matter how you see yourself in our society, if you have food on your table and a roof over your head and people you care for and people who care for you, that's the jackpot right now in this world. And 
I think that that is the kind of thing that we can all be appreciative of. That's the kind of thing that knows no party, knows no division. Those are things that are key to a satisfying human experience. And I think people coming together around those simple yet not simple, simple yet incredibly important aspects of life, you know, your health, your family's health, your friends, your children, you know, if you have those things, wonderful, say thank you a thousand times a day. If you know somebody who doesn't have those things, think about a time when things weren't, you know, going so great for you and, you know, be thankful and be helpful if you can. So I think those sorts of just really, really simple things that we often kind of take for granted. And if nothing else, I think this time of year, but also under the circumstances in which we are living right now, you can't take those things for granted. And it's good for you not to take them for granted. And it also helps you reach out to others and find common ground with others when you don't take those things for granted as well. Do you think it might be just a bit fortuitous that given social distancing and discouraging people from having large family gatherings for this Thanksgiving with the political division, this might actually save a few familiar relationships of not arguing over the election. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was writing a little something that I, I don't know. I might, I might put it on my blog or whatever. And I, I was talking about how different Thanksgiving is going to look for a lot of people this year. In a way, if you try and find the, the bright side of things, I have actually been connecting with people either about the book or just personally all over the country, which normally wouldn't happen because you go on book tour and you go to, you know, if it's Tuesday, it must be Tulsa, you know, and you're kind of on the road and you see who you see when you're there. And the ability to actually connect with family and friends all over the country this holiday, I think will be actually amplified because a lot of times you intend to talk to everybody that holiday weekend, but you know, who's in the kitchen and who's physically at your house that you need to entertain and who wants to go shopping on Friday and who doesn't and all that sort of stuff. And now I think with these limited gatherings, there is going to be a lot more time for just kind of, you know, picking up the phone or, you know, logging on to Zoom or whatever you're doing to visit with people maybe you don't usually get to visit with on Thanksgiving. But I was, I was writing, I said, there are probably going to be people who are going to be nostalgic for the, for the arguments. You know, there's, there's just something about just kind of, you know, coming together and having a meal and speaking freely that, uh, you know, I think people enjoy, but I, I, I think it could definitely reduce the number of kind of knockdown drag outs that can happen when members of a family of differing opinions <laughs> sit down at a table together. But it's always a good practice to have to sit down at a table with somebody you don't agree with. You do discuss the early celebrations of gratitude and thanks for nature or the gods providing plenty for people around the world. And you mentioned Epictetus in ancient Greece. About 11 years ago, there was this little trend going on Facebook at the time where you're supposed to get this random generation of quotes, a Wikipedia topic, and a picture. And the quote that popped up for me when I, I did this little thing was from Epictetus. And it said, really? if you would cure anger, do not feed it. Say to yourself, I used to be angry every day, then every other day, now only every third or fourth day. When you reach 30 days, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the gods. That is a great one. 
Oh my gosh, I love that. I'm going to have to look that up. Again, that's a fantastic quote because again, the timelessness of the concept, people struggling with anger because that's what we struggle with and the ability to just take these baby steps to try and embrace thanks and, and embrace grace, even though, you know, anger can make it difficult to do that at times. And then, yes, if you have managed to do that, offer up Thanksgiving, say thank you for it. There's no finish line when you're a human, right? Trying to be a better human. Mm -hmm. You just got to keep trying and, and the effort is rewarding. It can be rewarding in and of itself. Now, you mentioned her earlier. She's essentially the heart of the book, Sarah Josepha Hale, born Buell. And she was born even before there was a president of the United States. Yes, right before, yes. And her father had fought in the Revolutionary War, was injured during the Revolutionary War. So she grew up, she saw from the very first president, Washington, up through her death. I mean, she was born in the colonies and then had lived in the very early United States. From New Hampshire, mm -hmm. kind of, you know, in that epicenter of American Thanksgiving tradition, we think sure. of New England, and it really wasn't widely celebrated in the southern part of the colonies, was it? I mean, here and there, because the idea of Thanksgivings, whether they were often religious or secular, for specific events, such as, you know, even battles being won, there's a great quote I found in uh, one of John Adams' diaries, you know, Thanksgiving declared for repeal of the stamp tax, you know, stuff like that. And the idea of having a fall Thanksgiving festival took root in New England, you know, and that included New York and Connecticut, places like that, even though it wasn't a set day. There were different places throughout the South and other territories that did occasionally have versions of Thanksgiving. But again, that might have been for a specific event or a blessing received by, you know, a particular community for something that had gone well, and as people moved throughout the country, which they were already starting to do, you know, the traditions moved along with them. So what would a, a Thanksgiving celebration at the turn of the 19th century been like up in New England? You know, a lot of times the day itself was a solemn day where you weren't supposed to work. Usually the governor would declare whatever the day of Thanksgiving was going to be that particular season. It might be in October, it might be in November, it might be in, in, in December. Some of it had to do with what the harvest was in, in the area in which you were living. You know, after there, there was a certain amount of reverence to it, which is sort of funny because there was a, an aspect to it. Some people, you know, recommended, you know, days of fasting for Thanksgiving, which seems completely, you know, contrary to what we think of. But then that weekend tended to be for visiting friends, having large meals and, you know, hail grew up with the idea that, you know, turkey and pheasant and poultry and all those sorts of things, you know, were staples in not just in New England, but certainly there. Cranberries have been around for, a, you know, a very long time there because they were so easy to store. You could store them for long periods of time without refrigeration. You know, squash was plentiful, also something that was easy to store for a long time. So a lot of the foods that we still associate with Thanksgiving have been around for quite some time, certainly before the United States of America. And so the Thanksgiving meal she was obsessed with would seem very familiar to us and was something she wrote about extensively, starting with, you know, a, a novel that she published in 1827. And you could tell that she had an extreme sort of nostalgia for the Thanksgiving meals and celebrations of her childhood. 
she obviously had to be grateful for her parents when she was young in that they encouraged her reading and her ersatz education. It was amazing when you think about the fact that she had no formal schooling and yet her parents encouraged such a love of reading and self-education in her that she was able to go on and not just be a writer, but be an editor of magazines and anthologies and writers who went on to be quite well known. The things that I like to read is when you can sort of, you know, hear somebody's voice. And when she published an anthology of women's poetry called The Ladies' Wreath, and she wrote in the back of it her own sort of short biography. And you can just feel the passion that she had for knowledge and reading and books and learning that came from her parents and really just shaped her not only as someone who was able to go out in the world and become successful in a way that was not expected from women at all, but also someone who was going to spend her life dedicated to the idea that all young people, especially all um, young girls, should have access to education. And I think it's because she had such a tremendous impact, not on just her ability to move through life, but also it brought her so much joy. She got married at a relatively advanced age for the time. She was well into her 20s. Yeah. And she gets married, but she was fortunate that she found a man who appreciated her intellect and they made a great match. I would read about her and her husband, David, and you read about them and they had these little appointed study hours in the evening, which I thought was the nicest, <laughs> just such a lovely little ritual that they had. The two of them would sit from between eight and 10, they had hours and they would choose sort of a course of study for the evening. And it might be botany or it might be French or it might be, you know, some other subject or book that was intriguing them at the time. And he knew that she liked to write and actually is one of the people who encouraged her to submit her writing to different places. And you, of course, know that there were all kinds of relationships in all kinds of situations throughout history. It's not, you know, as everything was gender skewed in the 19th century and everything's perfect now. There's a mix throughout. But it was really refreshing to see this man who was, you know, really just saw his wife you know, as an intellectual equal and someone whose intellectual pursuits outside, you know, beyond her responsibilities as being a mother, that those should be encouraged. And he pushed her in a, in a lot of ways and gave her that freedom and that inspiration. I think they inspired each other, which was really nice. But tragically, their marriage wouldn't be one that would last even a decade. You know, he died from what would eventually become known as pneumonia, which was a killer. She was crushed and she had four kids and she was pregnant when he died. And it was so hard for her. And she had already lost both of her parents. So her husband and her children, you know, her brother, one brother was lost at sea. The other one was, you know, pursuing his legal career, you know, elsewhere. Her world sort of came crashing down and also... As she was quick to point out, you know, he was a country lawyer. So there were money considerations now, too. She had to, this person, again, who had no formal schooling, had to find a way 
to make a living. And she initially went into business with her sister-in-law at a millinery shop, but that's not what she wanted to do. But she would stay up late at night to write, to write, to write, to write. And finally, she began getting articles published. She got a book published and eventually got noticed so that she was offered to take the helm of a new ladies magazine. And you mentioned that she had mentioned Thanksgiving in her first novel. Was it Northwood? Was that the name of it? Northwood, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. What concept of Thanksgiving did she put forth in that novel? It's a fictional story. So there was a giant Thanksgiving meal in that book. And, you know, the meal is, is the setting for the characters. But she dedicates... I mean, close to an entire chapter on from the linens to the tables to where the kids sit to what's on the sideboard and plates of pickles and condiments and what kinds of wines and and all of this stuff. It is one of the more indulgent pieces of food writing you will ever see. And any editor today would have said, okay, we got we really got to cut this. I mean, I know you like food and everything, but we really got to cut this. Uh, we really got to cut this. This is too long. But it was a very grand, warm, lots of people around the table and a very nostalgic look at a, a large family meal in harvest time in New England. She also wrote in the book about slavery. That was one of the main themes of the book. She was really ahead of the curve. This is a quarter century before Uncle Tom's Cabin. I mean, there were so many things that came up looking into her and another reason why I didn't just want this to be a book about Thanksgiving, you research someone like this and you're like, oh my God, what have I been doing with my time? It's, <laughs> I don't know how she got all this. I am so slack. And she writes about slavery. For a woman, you know, when this first came out in 1827, to be publishing a book A and, and writing about slavery was pretty hard to come by. And like you said, it would be another 25 years before Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. And, you know, the characters in her book were very much a reflection of the world in which they were living. Some characters abhorred slavery and thought it, it was just a, a plague on society. Some, you know, were on the abolition end of things. Some of her characters endured it and other characters were fine with it. And so you saw all these different aspects of what was going on at that time throughout the country. To me, it was it was really interesting that she chose to talk about that. Now, she got into the editing game because I guess the income is more steady than just being a freelance writer. Could you talk about the influential nature and the widespread nature of Godey's Lady Book and all the wonderful writers of mid-century America who were included in those pages? After Northwood came out, it got enough attention that she was offered to head up something called the American Ladies Magazine. And she did that for a little while. But there was a man, Louis Godey, who had kept changing names. It was Godey's Ladies Magazine, Godey's, you know, American Ladies Magazine and Godey's Magazine. He had different incarnations of the name of the magazine, but I, I just call it Godey's. These magazines at this point in time, you know, around the mid 19th century, these were precious entities that weren't just read by whoever had the subscription. They would often get passed along neighbor to neighbor, parlor to parlor. So they had incredible readership. 
And they had everything from, you know, sewing patterns and, you know, music, little music scores, you know, for the people who played piano, there would be a, you know, a a song that they could play and write that had been published in the magazine to ads for fashion plates. They had poetry, they had fiction, and they also would review you know, we talk about influencers today and, you know, Hale at the helm of Godie's Ladies Book, she was like a massive influencer. You know, what went in that magazine, which was one of the most successful magazines of the 19th century, what went in that magazine, people paid attention to. And because she was such an avid reader, she wanted, and this was something that she and Louis Godie agreed on, they were not going to be merely reprinting a bunch of things that had already appeared in other publications, which was a very common practice at the time. They would call someone like a scissors editor. So basically you would clip from other publications and you'd almost like kind of curate your own sort of digest. But they wanted original writing and original pieces. And they liked to actually, you know, sort of tell people what to look out for and highlight books that came along. And she got a very early work from an unknown writer that the magazine, you know, covered this writer and said, you know, there was something about the form that was, you know, you know, kind of boyish and and underdeveloped. You know, he nevertheless showed real signs of, of genius. And it turned out that this unknown writer was a classmate of her son at West Point. Her son, you know, shared this article that had appeared in Godey's with his classmate who was the writer. And it was Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) And she was one of the very first, it's one of those things where it's like, can I say the very first? And it's one of those things where it's kind of hard to, but definitely one of the very, very first people to ever publish Poe when no one knew who he was. And she had a relationship with him that lasted through the end of his life. His last story, Malona Tonta, was published in Godey's. The first appearance of the cask of Amontillado was first published in Godey's. Washington Irving, before he was a big name. Nathaniel Hawthorne, before he was a big name. She was incredible. And she would see these writers and see their works. If she liked you, you were going to be in that magazine and people across the country would learn about writers that way. Getting into the, you know, sort of the dawn of the quote professional writer when writers were actually starting to be able to make an actual living off of their writing. And she was a real tastemaker in that sense. One of her own poems is still with us today. So the story goes, one of the first jobs she had before she was married was working at local schoolhouse and animals would often follow kids to school. And they say this is where the inspiration for this particular poem came from, a poem that, you know, when it was first published, its title was Mary's Lamb. We know it today as Mary Had a Little Lamb. And that is, in fact, the first line of Mary's Lamb. And the stanzas are exactly what you know them to be. But what I found so interesting is you go back to the original publication, it's a very long poem. (laughs) And I thought, I think I learned maybe two stanzas and that was about it. I was amazed at how long it was. And that was one of those things where I thought, should I put the whole thing in the book or should I just put in the part that we all know today and the kids still sing today? But I thought, no, I think the whole thing should be in there because I, I think it's so interesting that it was, in fact, such a long poem. And yes, it certainly had a fair amount of lasting power. When did she first petition a president of the United States to declare a day of Thanksgiving? 
Oh my God, who was the first one? I should have known you were going to ask me that. <laughs> um, uh, Taylor was the first one. Zachary I'm Taylor. Sorry. All right. Okay. Yeah. Zachary Taylor. Yeah. Taylor, then Fillmore, then Pierce. And Buchanan was right before Lincoln. So she's writing these president's letters telling them, you know, we need to have one day of national Thanksgiving. It should be the last Thursday in November. And the whole country should celebrate it on the same day every year. We only have two holidays, which at the time was Washington's birthday and the 4th of July. And she said, you know, we need, we need another one. This is important. It would be good for the national character, all that sort of stuff. She would write about it in the magazine as well from the editress, as she would refer to herself. She wrote letters to governors. She wrote letters to U.S. ambassadors in other countries. She wrote letters to the heads of territories, you know, places that, you know, weren't states yet. So she was petitioning a lot of people for years, in addition to writing about it in her magazine. But she knew that to get it done, she was going to have to appeal to a president. Lincoln was the one who finally said, yeah, let's do this. But the tenacity, I mean, it, it takes a lot to keep doing something when people don't see things the way you want them to. <laughs> the tenacity of this woman was quite something. It wasn't established as a regular federal holiday even after that first observance. So did she have to keep up that work every year to keep it going or had it already kind of gained its own momentum? She petitioned Lincoln the following year. Then she petitioned, you know, Jackson and then Grant. And I mean, she petitioned all the way up through, you know, Hayes, who was president when she died, Rutherford B. Hayes. She never gave up. And what's interesting is she also talked about in her magazine about we need an act of Congress, you know, for this to be firmly established as a national holiday from now until forever, because otherwise she knew it was going to be a matter of whether or not the president wanted to declare a national day of Thanksgiving and in turn, whether the individual governors, what they would then do is either, you know, kind of reprint whatever the president's proclamation was or do their own, usually citing the same day. So everybody would just kind of follow suit. She was worried that the, the holiday wouldn't, you know, continue to last if it did not have this congressional seal of approval. And that didn't come until right when we were about to enter World War II. She never lived to see it. Now, your previous book, The Last Castle, is about the, the Biltmore Estate in western North Carolina. From all your research on that, do you recall any details of spectacular Thanksgivings they held there at the Biltmore Thanksgiving and Christmas were very big for the Vanderbilts. But when I think about Thanksgiving and research for The Last Castle, one of the more interesting Thanksgiving episodes I came across was actually in New York City, the floor of, you know, early Madison Square Garden, they put down all these tables to feed orphans, homeless, things of that nature. And they had these giant, giant feasts for you know, people who could not afford to, you know, have their own Thanksgiving meal. And the wealthy would actually come in a separate entrance and sit sort of above the main floor and watch this happen. And the headline from the New York Times, if I remember correctly, it was they watched them feast or they came to watch them feast and sort of describes this whole episode because, you know, the, as the, you know, Gilded Age was giving way to the Industrial Age is, you know, just such an incredible disparity between the 
the haps and the have nots. And that to me was just a really interesting snippet that sort of embodied so much of what was going on at that time in American history. With The Last Castle concerning Western North Carolina, Girls of Atomic City in Eastern Tennessee, kind of the greater Smoky Mountain area, this is your first book outside of that area. So what was that like researching up there in New England? I've co-written a couple American history books that looked at the signers of the Declaration and the signers of the Constitution. And I spend a lot of time in New York, and so I'm very familiar with those archives. And so much of what goes on almost always brings me to the National Archives and the Library of Congress. But though it's funny, I never even thought of it that way, that I write about this particular region. And I think one of the reasons I'm not from Western North Carolina, but it's my home now, and I find this region, the Great Smoky Mountains area, Southern Appalachia, I find it to be a very fascinating region culturally and historically. And I think my curiosity about this area is definitely what led me to the Girls of Atomic City and certainly Biltmore Estate. My love affair with early American history goes back to, you know, 1976 and the bicentennial. I remember very clearly. I was young, wasn't that old during the bicentennial, but I was around. It made a really, really big impact on me because I remember the parades and Everything in town had something to do with early American history. They painted the fire hydrants red, white, and blue, and there were, you know, fife and drum going by and all of these different events. And it was the first time as a kid that I thought, you know, history wasn't just about who did what to whom on what day. It was what did people eat and how did they dress and how did kids go to school and what did their houses look like? You know, my family's Italian and Irish, you know, I mean, we weren't here. It's like, when did those people get here? You know, when did our family get here? And, you know, so to me, it was when history really became kind of a layered, in-depth thing to experience in so many different ways and ways that I found rather relatable. And, you know, the evolution of traditions and customs is something that, you know, I've always found interesting. So it it sort of seemed a natural extension of kind of those earlier forays into early American history for me. When I was a kid, everything had to be red, white, and blue that year. Oh, yeah, everything. I'd never seen anything like it ever. And, you know, I obviously I love, I love history and that really, it's so much of it goes back to that time in 1976, but also as a young girl, you know, who loved reading and, you know, history is like time travel. If it's good, you know, you really can sink into a completely different world. And I sort of was like, there've got to be more women in this somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) They've got to be here somewhere. I think that kind of stayed with me too. And it's funny, people say, well, you write only write in women's history. And I'm like, I don't write women's history. I just write history. <laughs> there just happened to be a lot of women in it. You know, I'm just trying to, you know, bring everybody into the picture because those pictures are more interesting if they are kind of fleshed out. So, but yeah, that was an interesting thing to live through. And now, you know, we're coming up on, um, you know, we're coming up on what, two 250. What do they call it? The No, there's a weird oh, word. Oh, yeah, I know, I, know, I know sesquicentennial is 150, but yeah. I don't know 250. No, it, it's, oh, sester, sester, sester centennial. Sester centennial. I'm pretty sure S-E-S-T-E-R, sester centennial. 
I'll be curious to see how that plays out. So are you going to be aiming a title for uh, the summer of 26? There will be one out before then. The one that was supposed, I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> You'll be one of the first people to know. But it was actually the book that I was planning to do that book now and do We Gather Together after it. But I just get these feelings sometimes that, you know, nope, it's time to do this one. So I did this one first. But yeah, I was going to be on the road all summer uh, <laughs> because there's some travel involved in the next one for research. And of course, I, I couldn't do that. So I'll figure it out. We'll, we'll figure it out. But yes, there will be one out before then. One of the reasons so many of us in America love Thanksgiving is that it doesn't involve presents. The commercial aspect, other than buying the food and maybe some fancy centerpiece decorations, is not a big part of it. But commercial concerns do dictate when we celebrate Thanksgiving in America now. Hale's concern that without a congressional act, the holiday would always be subject to the whims of presidents and then after that, governors during Roosevelt's term that actually came to pass. Whenever the last Thursday of the month fell, which everybody had just gotten used to at this point, and whenever the last Thursday of the month fell, like on the 30th of November, I think the first time it happened, I want to say it was in 33, and he would get letters from various merchants organizations saying, we don't have enough of a shopping season if you, if you do it that way. You have to change it. The first time he was asked to change it, he did not. Then in 39, they were floating all kinds of ideas. They even talked about having it like midweek in the middle of the month. And what they ended up doing was moving it from the last Thursday to the fourth Thursday. And what happened was still up to like the governors to go along with it. And a lot of governors were saying, nope, nope, because at that point there were football games scheduled. There were a lot of annual things that would happen. The calendar people were apoplectic because they had already printed and sold calendars that said, well, of course, Thanksgiving couldn't be the last Thursday of November. So there were places that celebrated two Thanksgivings, one week right after the other. They were like, we're just going to celebrate both. Then about half the country did the fourth Thursday and about half the country did the last Thursday. And it was very chaotic. But then when the Congressional Act was finally passed, just shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the last Thursday was initially suggested. And then the change that was made was that, no, it was going to be the fourth Thursday of November. And that's what made it through Congress. But yes, commercial interests are what started to spur that on and that connection with Thanksgiving, the holiday and the holiday shopping season. But, you know, you just kind of wonder what Hale would have thought of all that. Traditions evolve over time. Things change. Things go by the wayside. Are there any older practices in American Thanksgiving that you wish we still had today? Oh my goodness. Um, that's a good that's a good question. I could do without Black Friday. I'm not a doorbuster kind of person. I'm not into that. I'm grateful that with COVID and everything that they're not doing the Thanksgiving evening sales, especially. I just oh, yeah. when, when they started oh. doing that, it, it really rubbed me the wrong way. Oh my gosh. Me too. I love Thanksgiving. I've always loved Thanksgiving and, and it's because of what you said, it's, you know, there's no particular religion associated with it. You don't have to buy people presents. You pretty much know you're going to have a long weekend unless you work in the restaurant industry, you work in, in retail, things of that nature. But there is such a nice, peaceful rhythm for that weekend. When Yeah, when they started having those sales at like, you know, 10 o'clock Thanksgiving night, I thought, I don't like this. Because I also felt bad about the people who might not be 
into that who were going to probably be forced to have to leave their own festivities and go and go work. So yeah, the fact that they really did shut down that day, I think we could get back to that. Now, which Thanksgiving myths do we have in America? Which is the one that you would like to dispel? Let's get past this idea. You know, I'm not saying anything that people haven't been saying for years, but the idea that American Thanksgiving was created to commemorate a particular meal that took place between the pilgrims and the Wampanoag Indians, that's just not true. When Hale was writing these presidents, she never mentioned any particular event. She never mentioned any particular meal. She never said we need to commemorate, you know, some sort of first Thanksgiving and, you know, the idea that days designated to give thanks originated here is also not true. And the fact that so much disservice has been done to indigenous peoples and and the Native American community, it's just not right for us to keep telling young children about a, you know, some sort of prearranged invitation that was extended for people to come together and that that's why we celebrate this. This continent's relationship pre-colonial, colonial, and during the existence of the United States with, you know, Native American communities and indigenous cultures is a very troublesome one and very painful one for a lot of people. And there's so many wonderful things when you think about a holiday dedicated to giving thanks and dedicated to gratitude. And that is all you need. You know, I I want people to get back to, and a lot of people have, you know, really get back to the essence of giving thanks, the essence of Thanksgiving, which is finding those reasons to come together and to say thank you. What are your Thanksgiving plans this year with the the travel being discouraged? I usually do at least one turkey on Thursday, and then I usually do another one the following week because I just, I love doing turkeys. My husband and I will be here the Saturday after Thanksgiving, which is Small Business Saturday. Don't forget, Small Business Saturday. Even if you can't visit a small business, support them online or via phone orders or whatever. Saturday after Thanksgiving is when I go get my Christmas tree and decorate. And usually that is the day that we have a sort of a leftover Thanksgiving meal party at our house. And I make turkey, white bean, chili, and just put out all, you know, all the leftovers in their sandwiches. And while we put the tree up and people just stop by whenever they feel like it and hang some ornaments and have a good time. But that's not happening this year. But I am going to put my tree up on Saturday and the day of I will do, you know, I will I will get up early and I will do my cooking and I will enjoy the day. And if it's nice, I will take a little walk outside, but I'm going to make more food than the two of us need by (laughs) any stretch of the imagination. I love experimenting in the kitchen, but, you know, I make the same cranberry sauce every year. I make the same gravy every year. There's just certain things that I really get into. I may have one or two friends over on Saturday on the patio with masks at a great distance just to be able to see people because I miss that. We all do, I believe, except for the hermits among us. (laughs) So what would be your favorite side? I mean, the turkey is such the center part of the meal, but the sides are where I think the action. The action is, yes. I actually do love cranberry as a counterpoint to gravy and turkey. It's such a perfect meal, turkey and cranberry and stuffing. 
It is so delicious. I really do love cranberry sauce. And I make a Zinfandel cranberry sauce that has orange and, and spices. And that is absolutely one of my favorites. And I last year started doing my stuffing in muffin tins, in really big muffin tins. Hmm. So yeah, the stuffing muffins. So, and you can really pack them and pile them up because, you know, there's no yeast in stuffing. So they're not going to rise when you bake them and they get so nice and crispy. And they're these perfect little sizes. And the best part is the next day they do great in the kitchen. You just cut these stuffing muffins in half and you use them as bread for your turkey sandwiches. Oh, I'm a fan of dressing sandwiches myself. Oh, so imagine like a crispy on the outside, moist on the inside, stuffing as bread, and you have little slices of leftover turkey. Last year, I think I did Gruyere and arugula on them, and it was just, they were just so good. I, I can imagine it. using like a smaller muffin tin and making turkey sliders that way. Yes. Oh mm. my God. Yes. 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 Yeah. So I'm very excited about that. Well, you've given me some food for thought and hopefully for consumption too. <laughs> Denise, it's been such a pleasure talking about this wonderful holiday and the concept of gratitude behind it. It's been a pleasure and I'm very grateful for you coming on Book Talk. Thank you so much. It, it is always such a delight to talk to you. I really appreciate you having me. Denise Kiernan is the author of We Gather Together, A Nation Divided, A President in Turmoil, and A Historic Campaign to Embrace Gratitude and Grace, which is published by Dutton. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. And have a happy Thanksgiving, and please be safe. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752.